0: Hey guys, welcome to episode thirty-four of the True Crime Couple. I'm Kay, and I'm John. So before we start this episode, we just want to apologize if there is any background noise. We currently have our neighbors on the other side of the wall. I think that they're at a rap concert next to us. It's it's pretty loud. So if you if it picks up, we're really sorry.
1: It's been a trend lately, and you know with this whole Eminem, <laughs> uh, Machine Gun Kelly feud, I think this guy's taken it a little too far.
0: He's a little obsessed because it keeps going back and forth a little bit, but this woke us up and it's going to accompany us on the podcast. So hopefully it's not a, uh, hopefully you don't hear it. We're yeah, so sorry. It's, it's really <laughs>
1: annoying actually. But anyway.
0: Okay. First, we want to thank all of our listeners who are our new Patreon supporters. We're going to give a list of our new Patreon supporters from the past two months at the end of the episode to give thanks to you guys and we also want to thank anyone who is giving iTunes reviews that always helps us out so much or really just anyone who's listening we really appreciate all our new listenership and we're excited to bring you this next episode so let's get into it there are some tropes that commonly exist in horror movies blown out tires no coverage the abandoned house death by sex and vengeful spirits But there is one old faithful that will reign true until the end of time. Sinning teenagers being killed off, each meeting a fate more brutal than the last. All except for one. We call her the final girl. But what if we told you that there is a true story behind this one? Not an urban legend that really actually happened to one girl's cousin's best friend, but really happened. Only in this case, there wasn't a final girl, but a final boy. A boy who can't remember what happened that night in the scary woods surrounding a peaceful lake. A boy who also can't explain why his injuries don't compare to the ruthless slaughter that his friends endured. So what happened at Lake Bottom on June 4th, 1960?
1: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people
0: whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In this case, we're going to tackle one of the biggest mysteries the true crime genre has to offer. Of course, we always do our due diligence and read every piece of evidence, reports, and accounts that we can find. However, it is important to mention that there's a huge language barrier between us and this Finnish case from 1960. Unfortunately, many documents and interviews have been lost in translation as they were handwritten and not typed. So sometimes, like, even someone who does speak Finnish can't even interpret the documents because it was handwritten and so long ago. However, this case remains one of the largest unsolved crimes in history, so we really wanted to tackle it. In early June of 1960, international relations were freezing as the Cold War raged on. A few weeks earlier, the Soviets had shot down an American U-2 spy plane and captured its pilot, Gary Francis Powers. And as the world watched, frozen, until a move was made by the two world powers, the Soviets or the Americans, it was just beginning to warm up at the shores of Lake Bottom in Finland. Who better to take advantage of the serene landscape and cool blue waters that so tranquilly reflected the tall pines above than the local teenagers? Lake Bottom is located near the city of Espoo, which is just 14 miles outside the country's capital, Helsinki. It was the perfect place for 18-year-old Sipo Boisman and niece Gustafsson to take their 15-year-old girlfriends, Anya Tulicki and Myla Bjorklund, respectively. The group of friends brought with them food, orange juice, vodka, and two sleeping tents.
1: They're going to have a good time. sounds like a nice summer. A really good time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The events on June 4th, 1960 will forever be called into question. I would love to give you a basic timeline of events. However, we have little detail of what actually took place that night. But what we do know, I want to get into after we go over the crime and the investigation, as what we know is learned from our final survivor. So now we're going to tell you how these young kids were found and the chaos that ensued afterwards. At around 11 a.m. the next morning, a man was taking an early afternoon Sunday jog around the lake when he happened upon a campsite-turned-crime scene. The carnage he saw stopped him dead in his tracks. He immediately ran to the closest phone and called for law enforcement. As police came to investigate the scene, they were shocked by the brutal murders of these teenagers. There was blood all over the clearing and all into the woods. So this is pretty shocking for the community, especially in 1960, because even today, there isn't a lot of crime that takes place in Finland. So this was pretty shocking.
1: I can imagine, you know, especially like whoever was there first to see all that blood. I would have been scared too.
0: Yeah. However, when police arrived at the scene, they were more shocked to find that one of the boys was still alive. He was immediately brought to the nearest Red Cross station several police officers in tow waiting to hear just what happened the night before the police are immediately going to appeal to the public, but not in the way that we're used to. The police are going to ask the public to help them investigate the crime scene and search the woods for evidence and the missing murder weapon, which they reveal is a knife and some sort of blunt object. Okay. So we learned that there's two murder weapons. So If it's an attack on four kids, it kind of leads you to believe maybe there was two people involved, especially if there's two murder weapons. That's pretty interesting. Right. But this is, it's kind of shocking. I mean, obviously they had no knowledge of DNA in 1960, but if you're going to ask the public to help search for the murder weapon and help search the woods to look for evidence, that's kind of outrageous.
1: It is because then like you're, you're dealing with, evidence being tampered with
0: oh yeah and
1: and just all messed up think about it like even i'm sure there was fingerprinting back then even so like if if things had you know if someone picked it up now you have someone else's fingerprints on it exactly
0: well i that's a good point with tampering because we know that when someone has committed a crime a lot of times they want to be involved in the investigation or be involved in a search party even though of course this isn't a search party because nobody's missing But it is a search for evidence. Right. So, yeah, it gives opportunity for someone to tamper with the evidence. But in the least, the evidence is just contaminated.
1: Right, exactly. And that's that's the concern that you have there.
0: It's kind of a weird thing for police to to ask them to do.
1: Hey, hey, just go look for like a knife or anything that you could stab somebody with. Can you guys
0: just do our job for us? That would be great. (laughs) So the police also questioned all those who were staying around the lake on Saturday or Sunday. This is going to lead them to two young boys who approached the campsite because they saw the motorcycles that the boys were driving and wanted a closer look. So two motor- motorcycles were parked at the campsite and the boys just wanted to look at them. As they got closer, but still a distance away enough to not see the bodies, they saw that there was obviously something wrong because the, cr- like the campsite was in disarray. And they did, they did report that they saw blood. Okay. So, they knew not to get any closer, and then they tell police that they really didn't approach any further because they saw a man with medium-length blonde hair walking away from a collapsed tent. Hmm.
1: So they did see a man
0: leaving the site. Okay. So, let's get into what was found at the crime scene. The first couple, Anya and Seppo, their bodies were found inside of their tent. It appeared that while the couple was inside the tent, The killer is going to cut the ropes that are supporting the tent, causing it to collapse in on the couple. While the two were fighting to get out of the tent, they were stabbed with a knife and bludgeoned with a blunt object through the fabric of the tent.
1: That's a really crappy way to go, too. Because you can't even see who your attacker is. You You have no idea what's
0: happening to you.
1: You know what? Like that term, you can't find your way out of a paper bag, I think. Well, that's pretty much what was happening with them. Because they were in a tent and they... We're all fucked up.
0: <laughs> Except I don't think that that's what that term means.
1: Probably not, but you could imagine like you can't get out of yes, it. You know what yes. I'm saying? You're scared. Yeah. Anyway,
0: sorry Good. guys. <laughs> I think that this kind of eliminates the idea that well, not eliminate completely, but this takes away for me a little bit the idea that there was two attackers only because it seemed like. The person in one hand had a knife and in the other hand had the blunt object and was just, like, attacking them.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, a blunt object, I mean, he could have picked up, like, a large, um, like, a really thick piece of, like, wood branch, even, or, branch, or a hammer or, just... or something. Yeah. So, I mean, the person probably could have used two two weapons. Two.
0: It's just unusual to it see. It is
1: unusual. But, I mean, remember, they're the attacker's attacking them, right? And they're right. inside this tent. They can't really go nowhere. So, it's, like, perfect opportunity to use... Two weapons. weapons to just hit them so just to make sure. just keep on hitting the tent. You know what I mean?
0: Right. And Eventually sure. you're going to get somebody. It's also the fastest way to make sure the two victims die is to hit them with two objects at one time. Right. So the other two victims were found outside of the tent. Mela was found lying on top of her tent. She was undressed from the waist down. It appeared that Mela had sustained more wounds than her friends, despite the frenzied attack on them. So even though their attack was vicious, she had more stab wounds.
1: So you wonder if it was, like, focused on her, maybe?
0: Right. If she was the main target. Right. As per the coroner's report, most of the wounds that she sustained were post-mortem. Her boyfriend, Gustafsson, was found a few feet from her. He had sustained several injuries as well, including a concussion, a fractured jaw, and a deep knife wound to his forehead. While he was first found... Gustafson claimed he had no memory of the attack, which if you do have a concussion, that is believable, especially if the attacker was to first attack him and knock him out, then he's not going to have any memory of the attack.
1: Yeah, I could see that. Yeah,
0: like if he was like hit behind, hit from behind. Definitely. Gustafson, however, was able to give a brief description of what took place before the attack and what items they had with them on the campsite. It was through this information that the police were able to determine that several items were stolen from the campsite. Some of the items that were not at the crime scene were recovered about half a mile into the woods. This would be Gustafsson's shoes, clothing, and personal items. All other items from the crime scene, as well as the murder weapons, were never recovered. So I do think it's interesting that only his items were found.
1: Yeah, that is bizarre. But that also makes me think that it, it couldn't have been anybody there. You know what I'm saying? Like, it had to be someone that kind of migrated and came to this, like, to the campsite. Right. And then wherever this person lives has to go through the woods. Like, I don't know. That's just what I think.
0: You're saying the person that did this has to go through the woods to get to where the campsite is.
1: Right. And then that's why you that was find the way they... all the. Yes.
0: That was the way they fleed. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Or flu, whatever.
1: Whatever it is, but you you get my (laughs) point. That's why you're finding all those items there. So, like, I think right. But
0: it's weird that it's just his stuff. It's not like oh, dropped her piece of jewelry and his shoe. Like Mm -hmm. one shoe was both of his shoes, all of his personal items.
1: It's possible maybe he was looking for something specific, and maybe that I don't know. Maybe it was just on. I don't know. Actually,
0: it is interesting. It's weird. It could be that he's the one who's responsible and wanted to make sure that he still had his personal items, or someone was framing him, or someone just dropped it. And that's how... Oh,
1: yeah, to try to make it look like... He did it. Correct.
0: Some other details that were revealed have been done so through a question-and-answer interview that took place between Gustafsson and a police officer. However, the interview was written on paper, which makes it hard to read, and some translations vary. So I am only going to state the information... That is the same in all translations, and what is written is not up for debate. But that doesn't leave us with a lot to go on. We learned that the two couples were drinking vodka and orange juice. Good choice.
1: Very good choice. Yes.
0: It, like, hides the taste of the... Because if they're teenagers, it's most likely, like, cheap, gross, disgusting vodka. In college, I found that the orange juice kind of stops that burning of Majorska or Pop-Off or whatever you can afford that week. Wow. Yeah, just you... a little, with a little bit of Sprite. So you're letting out all it's your really secrets? It's really good. Yeah, it's my, the revealed secrets of K. Okay. I like it. Just the worst, worst vodka ever we could get. <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed like the boys were drinking more than the girls were when Gustafson was questioned about this. And at one point, Seppo went to go fishing at the lake for about an hour, but he returned with no fish. At one point, Seppo and Anya went into the tent together, but it's unknown if this was just for a short period of time or this was after they all turned in for the night. Gustafsson does recall that they went to sleep when it was dark outside and the attack took place when it was still dark. According to sunrise and sunset times for that date, the sun set at 934 and it rose at 302 the next morning. And that's because this time of year in Finland, there's more daylight time. So, it was about 18 hours of sunlight during that day. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. So, Gustafsson recalls that they were up a few hours after sunset. So, that means the attack must have taken place somewhere between 1130 p.m. and 3 a.m. Later on, Gustafsson is going to say that the person he saw attacking everyone, this is a little weird, was a black cloaked figure and he could have sworn that he saw red eyes. So this like added this like kind of supernatural element to the case where people associated kind of like the, a Grim Reaper like creature with attacking the teenagers. Really? Yeah. Okay, let's get back to the show. Through the investigation, police are going to have many suspects. However, there are three that have the strongest connection to the crime. The first is someone known as the Kiosk Man.
1: The Kiosk Man.
0: Yes. Not, like, in a mall, though. It's a little different. Like, a kiosk to them would be, like, someone who rents paddle boats for the lake or someone who,
1: like, like, sells food. Yeah,
0: like, just something for activities at the lake. Okay. So his name is Carl Gilstrom, and Gilstrom ran a nearby kiosk. He was known as a mean and aggressive man, a local who, despite the fact that his business relied on tourism, hated tourists. He was known to yell at campers and throw rocks at kids riding by on their bikes.
1: Well, that's a great business model he has yeah, going on. <laughs>
0: it's right. I don't know if it worked out for him. During a drunken conversation one night, Gilstrom is going to confess to a neighbor that he committed the attacks on the teenagers. When the neighbor is going to go to the police the next morning, the police are going to take a second look at his alibi. So just a side note here. Um... The police are going to ask everyone who either lives or works at or around the lake what their alibi was, even people who were just visiting on vacation. So they did have his alibi on file. So once he has this drunken conversation, the police want to just take a second look at it. So Gilstrom's alibi was given by his wife. She said that her husband was home and asleep the whole night. When they asked her again, she stated the same thing she did before. Police didn't stop there, though they also asked all of Gilstrom's neighbors if they heard or noticed anything suspicious. Well, they did. They had recently seen Gilstrom filling in a well on his property a few days after the murder took place, so this led to a search of the filled up well and the man's property. They thought that maybe at least they would find the murder weapons or any missing stuff from the crime scene
1: or like maybe bloody clothing or right something even that would his stuff make him. The suspect.
0: Right. No evidence was ever recovered, though. And although no physical evidence was ever recovered from his house, it's more of his actions that made him seem guilty. This really is going to come into play years after the murder took place. Because as soon as his alibi checks out and they search the house and they don't find anything, the police kind of move on to other people. But 12 years after the murder, Gilstrom is going to commit suicide by drowning himself in Lake Bottom. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's crazy. But just a real quick thing here, um, with the well, right? Yeah. So I know I know for a fact that based on locations and where you live, wells can go dry. So it's not uncommon for you to fill in a well if it's not producing any more water. So like I I, I get it, but I'm just wanted to throw that out there to anybody that doesn't know that. Right, it's normal to it's, do it is normal. Um
0: they determined that that's why he did do it. Okay. It was just an inactive well.
1: So check that out. There you go. All right.
0: His suicide note is going to claim that he was the murderer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, in addition, years later, on her deathbed, Gilstrom's wife admitted that she lied to police when they asked her for her husband's alibi. She admitted that she was afraid of him and that he had threatened to kill her if she said anything to police. So she basically, on her deathbed, recanted and told police that, in fact, her husband wasn't at home. However, a lot of people are going to say that Gilstrom was a very disturbed man, that he was depressed, and that maybe him claiming to be the murderer before the suicide was kind of a a way to grab attention or a way to be remembered.
1: Yeah, that's what I get from it. It was
0: more of like a cry for help kind of thing. because yeah. Because, I mean, there's many times that when people do try to commit suicide by drowning themselves that they're very that they're unsuccessful. And that's such
1: a really crappy way to go, to be honest. I mean, yeah. I I mean, that's
0: terrible. Well, usually <laughs> when people do commit suicide by drowning themselves, the the water usually has something to do with the reason why they committed the suicide. Okay. So, it hmm. could be an aspect. It is a second suspect that has been the most controversial, though. So, while the police were looking into Gilstrom, they were also investigating <sighs> Hans Asman. Hans Asman. Yes. Asman is a very controversial figure. In his memoirs, it's a very unfortunate name. So we're just going to laugh about it like we're 12 and then move on. <laughs>
1: okay. I'm, I'm with it. Yes,
0: Asman. He probably had a rough childhood, that's why. In his twilight years, he's going to confess to a journalist about his questionable past. He's basically going to write his memoirs with this man, who is a very respected journalist in Finland. Okay. So Because his past is what's always been called into question for decades, so he comes clean to this guy. So he stated that he was born in Germany and later gained Finnish citizenship. When he was 18, he was a member of the SS. He claimed that he worked as a guard at a concentration camp a year later. He told the journalist that over time he became disappointed with the Nazi movement and what it had become. He claims to have fallen in love with a Jewish girl, but I don't know if I believe that one really or if he's just like kind of saying it here to make it sound more romantic. But according to him, because of his disillusionment, he was sent to the Eastern Front to fight against the Soviets. During this time, on the now we have to remember, like we're going back to 1960, so a story like this is commonplace, except for the fact that if he was not lying about being a guard at a concentration camp, then he was wanted for war crimes,
1: right? I could see, yeah, exactly. And so, during that time, they definitely went out of their way to do that to get people for that,
0: right? But he was obviously in hiding during the time, which makes sense as to why he's coming out now with this story. If he really did work at a concentration camp. Right. So during his time on the Eastern Front, he was captured by Soviet forces and sent to a prison camp. He chose there to become a member of the KGB rather than face the harsh conditions of the prison camp. Now, here I think he may have a little bit of a hero complex here, or rather an anti-hero complex. I guess he's blown up the story over time, and this is what we see a lot, especially when, like I tell the students, when we read firsthand accounts of soldiers who fought in a battle or who were in war, you have to take a look at when it's being written. Because if it's being written years later, everyone blows up things in their minds. I mean, it's, it's a natural thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing anything wrong or... They're trying to be vain and saying that it was all on them. But it just happens where events become bigger over time in your memory. Oh, of course. So maybe this is kind of him just kind of like blowing things up a little bit. Because most likely, what I think may have happened if he was a part of these organizations was like he just messed up while being a guard at the camp, was sent to the Eastern Front, he was captured. And just gave out information to be treated better during his time, versus becoming like a full blown member of the KGB. You know I, what I'm saying? I
1: believe your your answer to this because I think it's just it's too much. It, it's too much. It's, it's too like, much. What's... Plus, I don't think they would even allow like an outsider to be part of KGB. Right? I mean, that's well
0: as as a double agent. But yeah, I but don't still... think he was high enough in SS forces to become that. You right? Know what exactly. I'm saying? Like,
1: what other than the information he... on the Eastern Front? There would be nothing he can give.
0: Well, if he was sent to the Eastern Front, that means that he wasn't in the highest standing with the SS. No. So he obviously can't get back in their good graces, so why would they accept him as a member of the KGB? Except he did probably have intelligence from before when he was working at the camps. But even if he was working at the camps, he wasn't a high-ranking official that would know information that would be of use to.
1: Well, that's what I'm trying to say. It it doesn't make sense. It's
0: very, yeah.
1: I mean, maybe like a little bit of the war strategy during his time there. Right,
0: but they didn't, really the Soviets didn't need the war strategy because they they were doing just fine in 1945. I'm
1: sure they were fine. They just needed the cold weather to win, really.
0: I just think his story, we should dilute it a little bit and like pour in pounds of salt. You know what I mean? (laughs) I agree. Yeah, oh yeah. At the time of the murders, his house was only located just under two miles away from the lake. However, this is not why he was initially brought to the attention of police. On June 6th, two days after the attack, he entered the Helsinki Surgical Hospital. When he arrived, his fingernails were black with dirt and his clothes were covered in red stains. Those who were working in the hospital said that he was very aggressive and nervous during his stay. At one point, he even faked unconsciousness. Despite his bizarre behavior, police chose not to investigate any further. Because he had a solid alibi. So sources vary here. Some sources say he spent the night at his girlfriend's house. While other sources say he spent the night at his girlfriend's sister's house. Okay. Because this was the final call, his stained clothes were never tested. And the dirt under his nails was never taken in as evidence.
1: I mean, is that just a thing back in the 60s that you wouldn't even do? Or is that something that they would have done but just didn't do it?
0: Well, they weren't. Thinking DNA. Right. Whereas today, you would, just to be safe. I think they were like, oh, he has an alibi, let's just let him go. There is some conspiracy theories that we'll get into that. Okay. But police didn't collect this as evidence, even though the doctors were in the face of police officers saying this is blood on his shirt, and he doesn't have any wounds that would produce this amount of blood. So this is someone else's blood, or even if it's just an animal, like there's a lot of blood on this guy's clothing, and you should really take it but the police officers didn't want to hear it from the doctors. In fact, one of the doctors that saw him that day insisted that Aspen had to be a part of the murders. And his name is Dr. Uh, Yorma Paolo, and he is going to actually go on to write three books about the connection to Aspen and the murders. Wow. Three books. This man is very intense about blood being on the shirt that day. Another suspicious move made by Aspen was when he cut his medium-length blonde hair after he read an article in the local newspaper that stated the boys had seen a man with the same length hair leaving the scene.
1: That's a little suspicious and odd.
0: Yes, and it, what makes it even more strange was that he hadn't cut his hair for years prior to this. He actually refused to cut it. He liked his long hair. And then all of a sudden, he wants to cut it.
1: you're like, well, it's something dramatic would have to happen for him to decide to cut it.
0: Right. So the conspiracy theory here... If we're going to believe Asman's story, and to some extent we kind of need to believe it because from the time that he moved to Finland, he in the 50s and 60s he lived in Finland, he is going to be immediately associated as a member of the KGB. Like people knew this of him. Okay. So we do have to understand that he does have some type of association with the Soviet government.
1: Okay. I mean, it's, it's possible.
0: Right. And you think Cold War, talking about spies, it's entirely possible. So the conspiracy theory here is that because of Asman's association with the KGB, the Finnish government did not want to upset the Soviets because Finland really wanted to keep good relations with the Soviets. Because they wanted to keep good international relations... They did not want to pursue Asman as the murderer because his past may be brought into attention. Because if this man is investigated, his ties with the KGB are going to come up, which is going to be a red flag for the Soviets to then get involved and not be happy with Finland. And Finland didn't want to stir the waters at all because at the time the Soviets are dealing with the Gary Powers thing. Okay. Okay. I
1: mean that's that's a pretty solid it kind theory. of makes sense. If he does have involvement with KGB ties, yes.
0: So this is where the land of the internet gets crazy town. Because in going through and searching for everything, people get really confused um, because they think that the claim is that the KGB told him to make the hit on the teenagers. But that's not the case whatsoever. That's not what the conspiracy theory is. The theory is not that the KGB told him to do it but his association with the KGB made the Finnish government and the Finnish police really not want to look into him too much because they didn't want to stir the pot. Okay. Okay? Yeah, believable. Yes. So many who believe that Asman is responsible for the murder also associate him with other unsolved crimes in Finland and after he left Finland to move to Sweden in the 1970s. Apparently there were many times throughout his life that he confessed to the murders at Lake Bottom, and other murders that were still unsolved. However, when discussed by police, they said that Asmund seemed to rather enjoy rumors that he was a supposed serial killer, and that he was just kind of amping up this kind of mysterious scariness that he was a former Nazi, a member of the KGB, a serial killer. Like, he was fascinated with being that person.
1: And it also, probably a feeling of him being untouchable as well. Right. You know?
0: So I think that Aspen's a very interesting character. I don't know. I think he wants to be an intense former Nazi, a KGB officer, a a KGB spy, and a serial killer. Do I think he is? I don't know. There isn't enough information about him to determine that. But this is going to lead us into the third suspect and the most obvious. Nis Gustafsson himself our final boy. The one who survived is always looked at as a suspect. Why, if everyone else was slaughtered, did he survive? Why were his injuries light compared to that of his friends? What made police most suspicious was the fact that he could not remember a thing. And when he did remember, the figure was wearing a black hood and had red eyes.
1: Well, like, why would...
0: Why would he say... Even, why would he say that? Yeah. Like, I feel like even if that did happen, I would keep my mouth shut because I don't want to draw more attention to myself.
1: Yeah, it's just a bizarre thing to say, oh, it was a cloaked figure, couldn't really see, but I saw red eyes. Like, right. Okay. Well, you know.
0: years later, he's going to reveal Um, he went under hypnosis. And while he was under hypnosis, he admitted that the killer had long blonde hair. So, I mean, I don't know if I believe the whole hypnosis thing, but it's just... An assault. It's just something that happened. Yeah, but
1: you know what? At that point... At he that knew point, about the long blonde hair Exactly. Thing. Right.
0: So in the years following the murders, the Lake Bottom incident spilled into urban legend. A cautionary tale for all teenagers. Don't go to the lake on a Saturday night, drink, sleep in a tent with your older boyfriend. Or you're going to get murdered. You know what I mean? It yeah. was just... It, that's what it became. It was the most notorious unsolved crime in Finland. And it was even cause for speculation around the world. So this led investigators to reopen the case in 2004 because of two things. First, the belief that new technological advances could shed some light on what really happened that night. The second is a woman. A woman who was verified to also be camping on Lake Bottom at the night of the murders. And she's going to tell the public some interesting information. She is going to say that she never told police that on the night of the murders, Gustafsson visited her campsite and that when he did, he was very aggressive and drunk. He eventually left her unharmed, but he had rattled her. And based on the new testimony, police are going to arrest Gustafsson in 2004.
1: Oh my God. That's so crazy though. But hey, it catches up with you.
0: It happens. It, happens, it does. But it's not over don't assume it was him. His trial is going to happen very quickly after his arrest. The case the prosecution made is this. Gustafsson was angry the night of the murder. His friend, Seppo, was having sex with his girlfriend in the next tent over, and he tried to have sex with Mila, but she refused. Because of this, he got drunk, finished the vodka they had, and stumbled upon the other woman's campsite. Eventually he wandered back to his own and murdered his girlfriend. After he did this, he murdered his friends in the tent to get rid of the witnesses or because he was in a rage. Then, because he was still so full of anger, he went back and stabbed his girlfriend, even after her death, after he undressed her from the waist down. The prosecution is going to argue that this is the reason why Mela had been the main target of the attack, had most of the wounds. The woman who received the most injuries is usually the focal point of the aggression. They explained his injuries by saying that some of them were self-inflicted and that others were from a scuffle that he got into with another man. This is something that I really didn't understand because there would be no opportunity for this to take place unless he went to another campsite and got into a fight with somebody. And that person didn't want to come forward because they didn't want to be known as the aggressor the night of a murders took place. Right. I don't think that if if he did do it, I don't think he got into a fight with another person. I think he, these are all self-inflicted wounds.
1: But he broke his own jaw?
0: That's what I'm... So, some of them are not possible.
1: You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, don't get me wrong.
0: How can you fracture a jaw, give yourself a concussion... And to to stab yourself very deeply in the forehead is kind of scary.
1: Well, I can tell you, I mean, listen, listen, let's, if he is, if he already jumped off the deep end, he probably would give himself a concussion. I mean, it's not hard. You go up to a tree, you hit your head. Right. I was thinking that. You know what I mean? Your jaw. I mean, that's a little weird, but it could have been that it's possible. That during the struggle in the tent when he was stabbing them, it's possible maybe oh maybe
0: like some maybe like a even, leg went up a foot a leg mm-hmm. even or
1: maybe once maybe the man stood up or the woman stood up and hit him in the like it
0: okay I see what you're saying you know what
1: I'm saying okay like, we can't just think that they're just laying flat in a tent the entire time no
0: they're not like let this happen you know what I mean yeah
1: so it's possible that he got it from the struggle. And the concussion can be completely self uh, I can't talk today. <laughs> but he, he could Self-inflicted. Have given, thank you. He could have You're given welcome. himself a concussion, so... But the jaw is a little bizarre.
0: Yeah, but that's a good point. I think that it's very understandable that he could have gotten the fractured jaw from the attack of the two in the tent. That makes sense. Yeah. So the defense of Gustafsson is going to argue this account. First, they're going to explain that Gustafsson has never been in trouble with the law. He's a retired family man who spent decades as a school bus driver. They're going to say that it would be difficult to stab yourself as deep as he did on the forehead. Another thing they're going to say is that the woman who came forward did not do so as a good Samaritan. And she didn't come forward to police at first either. Her side of the story was heard because she made an appearance on a documentary made of the crime. So she didn't in 2004 say, I'm going to go and tell police I have a guilty conscience. Let me tell them what happened. She appeared on a documentary.
1: Which she probably got paid for.
0: You're right, and got a lot of attention for as well. Possible. Possibly this woman could also be integrating herself into a crime that has fascinated her her for decades. Especially because her story can't be corroborated. There's no one else there, so she can really make up whatever she wants.
1: Right. She was by herself. Uh, it's definitely possible.
0: Yeah, because this became such, it's a worldwide known case, right? So she could have been fascinated with it, especially the fact that she was there that night, but doesn't have a story to tell. And right. now she's concocting a story to tell. I wouldn't it's doubt possible. it. It's possible. Not saying she's lying, but saying it's also possible. And it hasn't, it's happened before. In the documentary, she claimed that two boys entered her campsite, but then in court, she said that it was just Gustafsson. So her story changed. Another claim they're going to make, which I think is the most important part of this whole thing, every piece of evidence that has been collected or was found at the crime scene is contaminated due to police misconduct. Not necessarily saying the police did a horrible job. In 1960, they didn't know what they know now, but you let the public search for everything. Every inch of that crime scene is contaminated.
1: And not only did they make the people, the public search for a possible weapon, but also like they were, they didn't even take evidence when they should have.
0: Right. So like, Like there's nothing to go on.
1: Exactly. There's nothing to go on. If there is, it's completely tampered with. And there was just no due diligence to check up on possible evidence as well. Right. So. I agree. I mean, that's just what happens.
0: Defense had a good case when it comes to that. However, his defense was unsuccessful. And in 2005, Gustafson was convicted to life in prison, but he would only serve one year. His appeal process was successful, and he was released. The appeal was based on the contamination of evidence and the inconsistency of the new witness, like we said. Yeah. Even though he was released from prison, it seems the stigma and the guilt has followed him years after. Like, everyone... Before this 2004 reopening, everyone thought it was Asman. And now after this trial, everyone is convinced that it's Gustafsson. So now he has to live with this.
1: There's motive in why he would do it.
0: I mean, the story is so believable. As you listen to what the prosecution is saying, you're like, okay, that makes complete sense. Especially because the focal point was his girlfriend. Right. Right. So there's a lot of things to consider in this case. And... It's so interesting because this case is like a horror movie. And each possible scenario becomes like its own subgenre of yeah, it's horror. Like
1: a, almost like a spinoff. Like, right. Yeah. It's like a
0: cabin in the woods. Like, how could this have happened in all these yeah. different ways? So first is that the former Nazi did it. A KGB spy during the Cold War. I mean, that fascinated the public for years. So that's pretty interesting.
1: I mean... I, I want to say this, right? So we have three suspects, right? Mm-hmm. I think that two of the three I can actually write off. And maybe I'm completely wrong. Okay. But I just want to say this for all our listeners and to you too, right? So I think that let's do the kiosk guy first.
0: Okay, Gilstrom.
1: So he has this lake. He sells things for people who come, all the tourists, right? It's a hot mm-hmm. spot. He's making money. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, he's dealing with depression, all this other stuff. What better way to bring in more tourists after his death for his wife to make money than to die there? Because now you have this urban legend going on. You have his death there with the note that said that he did it. It's an attraction. It 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 is a big
0: tourist spot now. A lot of people go visit the site. So it
1: brings more people there. What do you do? You sell more shit. You make more money. It's a win-win. And it's even better that she's now cooperating it at her deathbed. The, uh, I mean, well, well, I'm corroborating sorry. Corroborating the story. Saying yeah. that, uh, you know, he whatever. Did he, he did it, right? So I write that off as I want to kill myself. I'm depressed, whatever. But in my absence of not being here anymore, I'm going to make sure that the, my tourist spot makes more money for my wife.
0: Okay, Okay? I see what you're saying.
1: So that's what I'm thinking with that. Maybe I'm, I don't know if I'm being closed-minded or not, or I'm going overboard, but I could see that being a thing.
0: So you're saying that he didn't commit the murders, but this was his final, like, I'm going to help my wife by making this an even bigger, right? like, spot to go think to about how
1: much of a story that makes oh my it's god it's a guy that did it and he killed, killed him, himself say, by right? drowning
0: in the lake i get i see that part i think it's also just a mentally ill man who was looking for attention but that would be an interesting yeah, it is interesting right yes
1: now i got another one for you so this nazi okay, right i'm ready this nazi I, i'm just gonna say this let's just give him credit and say that he was a, a guard at a concentration camp yeah
0: i didn't even want to mention it in the story like earlier because i thought it was so ridiculous but he said that he was a guard at auschwitz i couldn't find his name on any list of any guard at auschwitz and the fact that he even said auschwitz makes me feel like he's lying because of course you're going to say that that's yeah. the most known well, camp i don't want it's to give somebody like this crazy. credit because yeah.
1: you're a shitty human being whether if you were there or or lying about the story, but let's just give him credit and say that he was indeed a guard there, right? Okay, and he continues his life and he is able to gain citizenship and he's all good, right? Now you're coming out with these memoirs, you're making you're trying to make a dollar, and you are obsessed with the fact that you're getting this attention and that you can blow up a story because no one can corroborate if you're lying or not. You can right. say that you're KGB, you can say you're all this stuff, and he loves. Pretending, this is like the, like he's playing doctor. Right, he's right. pretending.
0: So this is another thing he's pretending at. Right, not just the lake bottom murders, but also others, and making this makes him a serial and, killer.
1: And right, like he feels like he's untouchable because maybe in and it's possible that he feels he's untouchable because they think that there must be something going on with him because he, the memoirs, the the way that people view him already.
0: Well, also he may feel a little bit untouchable if he is in any way associated with the Soviet government at all because Finland and Sweden, where he goes to next, well, they don't want to be the red flags that the Soviets have to look into. They want to appease the Soviets. Right. And
1: then you can say, okay, the whole hair-cutting thing, I I can tell you, maybe he cut his hair to make it look more like he did do it and, look, there's nothing that you guys can do to me. Or if he's
0: being looked in as a suspect, I'd just be like, okay, well, I'm cutting my hair It's just something that happens. It's what people react really weirdly. Even if you take a look at, like, Son of Sam. Right. When they thought he was going after women that had a particular hair color, so then they were changing their hair color. It could just be, like, I want to stop getting attention. Because when that article came out, I'm sure every man with longish blonde hair was being looked at sideways. Probably. So a lot of people probably cut their hair. And,
1: And the last one, I mean, the kid. I mean it's hard to say he out of all the out of the other two out of all three he is the only one with an actual motive yeah in my opinion there's no motive those are just senseless violent acts that they would commit
0: exactly he has
1: motive if they're like doing this weird shit swinging their girls around and having sex or whatever
0: no I think that he's upset because that couple was having sex but his girlfriend wouldn't have sex with him. That's what they were saying. I read that wrong. Yeah. Well, relax. What are you saying is going on there? you imagine? Well, I was shocked. That's where I
1: thought you were going with it. But anyway, still, he's the only one with motive.
0: Yes, and all of his wounds, they're not necessarily self-inflicted. I think he could have gotten all of these wounds during the attack in the tent or the attack on his girlfriend. Because if he has a knife in his hand and someone kicks up in the tent, the knife may have cut him in the forehead. Or also... They're all to his face. It's possible... That it happened it with is, or the
1: blunt object it could have hit him it could have struck himself in the jaw yes. with it when he was beating them senselessly so right i think that the third one the kid has motive
0: yeah i think it's the most likely suspect even though i don't think society ever wants this case to be solved right because it is the perfect cautionary tale an urban legend if you're going to go do something bad on your own while you're a teenager something bad's gonna happen to you yeah Right, So they don't want it to be the boyfriend. They don't want it to be the KGB spy. They don't want it to be the mean man on the lake. They want it to be that unknown hooded figure that is just going to get you because you're doing the wrong thing.
1: It's also weird, too, how... It's also weird how... It goes from zero to 100 extremely quickly. Like, you're going from a kid with their friends that could be a suspect. They
0: seem to be having a good time, but I think in a teenage boy's mind, while he's drinking, he could have been mad the whole time that they were not having sex as a couple, and he thought that was going to be the night, and then it wasn't. And he snapped. Yeah,
1: I can see that. I can see that it's hard to tell, but
0: and the worst part is, is that nothing. It will never be solved because of the police mismanagement of the scene. There's no evidence, right? Not they enough. still have the tent. They have it up on display, but which is pretty weird, gross, and gruesome. But they get a lot of tourism because people come to the lake, right? So we'd love to know what you think about the crime, who you think did it, which one of the three suspects, or if you think there's somebody else that we didn't mention. There were a whole bunch of other suspects that there just wasn't enough evidence to talk about their involvement with everything. So I didn't really go into it. But what we want to do right now is just give a shout out to all of our new Patreon donators from the past two months. Ashley Jones, Cynthia Morales, Moranike Akinlon, Akinlawn. I'm sorry. I'm...
1: They're going to hate you now. Hold on.
0: Maura Akin Akenlawen. I hope that's closer. Okay. Sorry. Lisa Pincher increased her donation. Thanks, Lisa. Jennifer Mertlick. Stephanie Fisher. Kelly. Brawen Gamso. Christy Adcock. Maggie James. Samantha Boyd. Rhonda Simpkins. Danielle O. Tiffany Rudy. Deanna Sparks. Tara Haynes. Diana Harden. Elizabeth McGinty kathy malcolm tabitha kayla and april jackson and if you want to donate also to our patreon page and get a shout out of your own that's at patreon.com slash true crime couple all right guys thanks for listening
1: bye guys